a general thought that these people are fringe and mm-hmm. you know crazy and li- live up in a forest somewhere. I mean, they're, it's <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's obviously much more serious than that. And much more serious. What is the cost? I mean, we are seeing the cost of underestimating these groups now that are being called to the street by Trump. Yeah, these. I think these groups have never really been French. That is what, to me, is most terrifying, is that this group is made up of people who are educated, who have jobs, who have careers, who have families, and thought that what they were doing was acceptable, if not necessary. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Backstory. Based in London, I'm Dana Lewis. What madness is unfolding in America? An American president has launched an all-out assault on, well, pretty much everything. Trump came to power in 2016 calling mainstream media fake news and has done everything to undermine the public's confidence in journalism that is not pro-Trump. He has called out the FBI and the courts for being part of the dark state and against him. Every political opponent that is not on his side is later berated in tweets and rants that they are stupid or disloyal or losers. Same with anyone who has worked for him and later left. And then came the election. In a country admired for its democracy and rule of law, Trump started saying the election was false from the beginning. And if he didn't win, the result wouldn't be fair. He lost and then called it a massive fraud up to 70 court cases, many by judges he appointed, said there was no evidence of cheating. But Trump won't concede and won't participate in a peaceful transition of power. And then he called a rally on the day the U.S. Congress was set to ratify the voting and he let his dogs off the leash, calling demonstrators to march to Capitol Hill where a riot occurred. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved. Our country has had enough. We will not take it anymore. And that's what this is all about. And to use a favorite term that all of you people really came up with, we will stop the steal. Stop the steal. It's incitement to insurrection. Here's some of the violent imagery Mr. Trump used in his speech. Quote, Republicans are constantly fighting like a boxer with his hands tied behind his back. It's like a boxer. And we want to be so nice. We want to be respectful of everybody, including bad people. And we're going to have to fight much harder. We fight like hell, and if you don't fight like hell, you're not going to have a country anymore. We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. You don't concede when there's theft involved. Our country has had enough. We will not take it anymore, and that's what this is all about. We are going to try. Give our Republicans, the weak ones, because the strong ones don't need any of our help, trying to give them a kind of pride and boldness that they need to take back our country, unquote. It was an attempt to overthrow the government. Protesters called for, actually they're terrorists, called for the lynching of the vice president and finding and holding accountable the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. They looked for her throughout the building and then occupied her office. Sadly, the person who's running the executive branch is a deranged, unhinged, dangerous 
president of the United States. And only a number of days until uh, we can be protected from him. Uh, but he has done something so serious uh, that there should be prosecution against him. Four dead. Trump is in the White House plotting what next? He has been silenced by Twitter and Facebook. He's announced that he won't attend the inauguration. And his supporters, convinced the election wasn't free and fair, vow to carry out more marches and God knows what else. On this backstory, why, when social media was full of threats to the Capitol, were D.C. police caught flat-footed? American democracy today is badly bruised and maybe broken. All right, joining me now is Kelly Carter Jackson, uh, an assistant professor of Africana Studies at Wellesley College in Massachusetts and the author of Force and Freedom, Black Abolitionists and the Politics of Violence. Hi, Kelly. Hi, how are you? Very well. I mean, you wrote a great article in The Atlantic, and uh, that's what led me to ask you to do the interview with us. So the, the headline is, The Inaction of Capitol Police Was by Design, are you suggesting some conspiracy here? I, I'm not suggesting so much as a conspiracy as I am suggesting the double standard that happens in American policing when it comes to black protesters. As when we're dealing with white protesters, we see a clear um response that happens with marginalized groups of people and white people that is completely um, different from what we saw earlier this summer. I mean, you're, so not the only, you're not the only one. A lot of people have said that police yeah, were very yeah. harsh in places like Portland and in Washington and all over the country when it came to the BLM, uh, Black Lives Matter protests. And here you had white terrorists, some of them, not all of them, outside the uh, the Capitol, and then push, and then the terrorists pushing their way inside that building. And policemen, I mean, the the videos are perplexing. I have to tell you, I've they covered are. a lot of these I things mean, as a see, correspondent. We see police officers opening up the gates, you know, which makes no sense. We see police officers taking selfies. I find that abhorrent. You know, we see police officers who were grossly unprepared, grossly outnumbered. Um, and that, to me, I think the optics of the entire insurrection was the hardest to, to grapple with. How is it that the Capitol Police, the D.C. Metro Police, you know, the FBI, everyone who could have been involved and was involved did not um, meet the resistance with equal fervor? I mean, out of respect for some of the police officers, and their families. I mean, you see some officers fight valiantly to stop people from entering that building. Uh, one of them is is beaten and dragged down the, the steps, uh, yeah. beaten with an American flag. And yeah. then you also see this black policeman. Oh, uh, that was the most terrifying. Heroic, where the crowd is coming at him. Mm -hmm. Obviously not going to be very friendly to him. And he kind of leads them, you know, he glances towards the door to the Senate floor, and then in the end leads them the other way to buy time for people inside. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it just, I mean, that that's one of the images as well that has just stuck with me the most, The because I had fear for him. When when you see him sort of coming down the steps and the, the mob turns the corner and sees him and he's like, I'm outnumbered. And all he has is like a, uh, like a baton. Um, 
and it, it was also clear that like his badge, his uniform would not protect him from the mob, that there was no um, civility or level of deference that was owed to him as his position as a police officer. And in that moment, I think he realized I'm not just a cop, I'm a black cop, and that this is going to be a problem. So there's a lot of speculation. I mean, we're still coming to terms with what happened. Remarkably, after spending my career covering big events like this, where there are repeated news conferences afterwards by the FBI, by the White House, silence. National Guard was delayed uh, and stalled at one point. Capitol Police, as you mentioned, standing back in some of the videos, well-coordinated with pipe bombs being placed at the DNC and the RNC headquarters to maybe to distract police. Uh, Protesters armed with handcuffs and maps of the building. Who was pulling the strings? I mean, we won't completely know that until we have a full investigation of what took place. But what I think is remarkable is that these fringe groups have been telling the public for months what they intended to do, what their plans were. They, I saw, you know, um, news footage of them showing, like, showing off their arsenal and showing, you know, when he gives the signal, speaking of Trump, he gives the call, we're ready, we're going to be ready. And, you know, I think people didn't really believe them. I think people thought, oh, who's got time? They're not serious. But people had orchestrated buses to come to D.C. And this was not just you know, for a protest. Do you think it was orchestrated by Donald Trump's White House? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think think that you cannot separate Donald Trump's leadership or lack thereof um, and these abhorrent actions. Uh, They are certainly, certainly working in tandem. New York Times reporting that cops, cops, policemen from Texas, Pennsylvania, New Hampshire, uh, as well as other states are now under scrutiny after s- scrutiny after social media posts placed them near and in the riots that took place at the nation's capital. And some policemen reporting that they were fighting off uh, policemen who were not in uniform, but people who were flashing badges saying, yeah. we're doing this for you as they punched them in the face. <laughs> yeah, that's that's the irony of this is that when you look at that crowd, you know, a lot of one of the things that I wanted to say, but you only have a limited amount of space in the op-ed, is that people think that these people are are some fringe, crazy, radical group. Um, but this is us. That group of people was made up of off-duty officers, veterans, soccer moms, college students, elected officials. So when we think of who's present, I think we really have to have also another honest conversation about um who is who is a part of the police force and and have we allowed the police force to somehow become co-opted by also these these radical groups as well i've also read reports about white supremacists and clan members you know um actively gaining um you know police academy training and joining police academy forces so that they can have more influence that's scary to me well there are reports from the um you know that have been prepared by all sorts of people but Uh, Michael German, a former FBI special agent, has written extensively on the ways U.S. law enforcement have failed to respond to far-right domestic terror groups, concludes that U.S. law enforcement officials have been tied to racist, 
militant activists in more than a dozen states since 2000, and that hundreds of police officers have been caught posing uh, racist, posting racist and bigoted social media content, to use his mm -hmm. words. What's your reaction to that? I mean, this goes back to also what I said in the op-ed, that the inception, the genesis, the creation of the police force uh, was developed out of slavery. It was established during the institution of slavery to prevent runaway slaves from escaping the plantation. And that police force has evolved over time, but the white supremacist or anti-Black sentiments have been, you know, sort of inculcated into the institution since its inception. So it's not surprising to me to see these things given the history of policing in the United States of America. But what I do think is intolerable is how we have allowed for this to continue and that we have never really seen substantial police reform that would allow for you know, these particular groups of people to be um, ostracized from a, um, a police academy. I mean, you said earlier, there's kind of a, a general thought that these people are fringe and, mm -hmm. you know, crazy and li live up in a forest somewhere. I mean, it's obviously, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's obviously much more serious than that. And much more serious. What is the cost? I mean, we are seeing the cost of underestimating these groups now that are being called to the street by Trump. Yeah, these I think these groups have never really been French. You know, Kenneth uh, Kenneth Jackson is an amazing historian at Columbia University, and he wrote earlier about the history of the Klan, and he talked about it as an urban phenomenon. He says it was, you know, filled with police officers and judges and elected officials and businessmen and ministers, and that there's this superficial myth that, you know, the person who's in this group is like, you know, Bubba from Mississippi or like some, you know, we think of some ignorant person, some uneducated person, but that is not the case. And that is what to me is most terrifying is that this group is made up of people who are educated, who have jobs, who have careers, who have families and thought that what they were doing was acceptable, if not necessary. Do we now have to go in in all the lessons learned from this, and by the way, it's ongoing, right? Because there are marches that are called for uh, on the on the 17th. There are marches that are mm -hmm. called for on the 20th, the day of inauguration. Mm -hmm. um, do, do you think we have to go and look at the screening again and the recruitment again in all these police departments, minimal, mi minimally, and try to get these, you know, QAnons and Nazis uh, and clearly, you know, people who are racist out of those departments somehow. We do. And I, and I think that requires more than reform. I think we have to completely redo the system. You know, I, I study the abolitionists and the abolitionists were not trying to reform slavery. They were trying to abolish slavery. And I think that when we look at the institution like the police and we see all of its systemic structural corruption and racism, you can't reform that away. You actually have to create something new in its place. And I think drastic change is needed if we're ever going to move forward from where we are right now. Kelly, what are our Afro, Af African-Americans saying right now after, you know, seeing what happened at the Capitol? What, what, what's the chatter? I mean, it is a range. I have friends who have called me in tears, people who are so disturbed they're they're considering pulling their children out of school during the day of the inauguration. They're not sure what's going to happen. I have friends who have made this 
somewhat comical and that it's not funny, but pointing out the double standard and finding ways to look at these white people, look at this craziness, look at what we have allowed, look at how black people would never be able to do this, you know, pointing out the double standard. I think there's a range, but for what most people feel is grief and anger and um, a profound sense of disappointment at what this country is and what it's headed toward. Can I ask you what you're feeling on yeah. on going after on going after President Trump? Um, is you know the two school of thought seem to be emerging. One is let's not further inflame how divided the country is. Let's start towards reconciliation. Let him leave on the twentieth. He's off Twitter now. You know, let's just push through this and forget about it. Or, you know, to some extent, you know. Um, and there are others that say, no, no, no. This was a crime against the nation. Uh, and we have to bring these people to justice, including the president himself. Absolutely. You know, I, I feel the latter. I feel you cannot simply cause harm. And, and then apologize and keep it moving. You have to go about repairing the harm that you caused. And you have to be honest about your actions. And then you have to face consequences. Um, I mean, these are lessons we teach our children about how we behave and how you apologize. And then how after that we should see changed behavior. Um, and I think one of the things that we've never really seen is repentance. We've never really seen a mea culpa um, on both sides of the issue. And I don't think that we have yet to see real accountability. And so that's what I want more than anything. You know, I think that if we allow President Trump to just sort of fade away into the darkness and not have to answer to the damage and the harm that he has caused, then all we will be doing is preparing another person to come in and do it even worse at an even more astronomical level. And if he's, probably not gonna, he's probably not going to fade away in the dark anyway. But yeah, yeah. You, Alabama oh, Congressman Barry Moore has only been in office for a week. He's already had to de delete his own Twitter account. His official account, the Republican called Capitol Riots a disgrace. Um, but then in his personal account, he says, we have more arrests for stealing a podium, which was, you know, pictured in all of those those very high profile photographs on January the 6th. than we do for stealing an election on November the 3rd. So there's no repentance there, certainly. Mm -hmm. And then he says, I understand it was a black police officer that shot the white female veteran. You know, that doesn't fit the narrative. What's he saying there? Oh, my gosh. I mean... Gosh, there's so there's so much there in terms of the duality of what he is presenting, and so much of what he said has also been not substantiated. There is no um, evidence it's racist. Of fraud. Yes, it's it's absolutely racist. And what he's also trying to do is in using the race card to flip these arguments around as to make this idea as though reverse racism is a thing. It's not, it does not exist. Um, racism is about power and black people don't have power. So um, you can't make those arguments. And I think we have seen sort of like the verbal and intellectual gymnastics of how people have tried to maneuver themselves into making an argument that they feel like bears merit that has no ground to stand on. And it's really disturbing to hear him say that. I just want to come back to where we started. The inaction of Capitol Police was by design. 
if that had been a, a Black Lives Matter protest with, Gosh. you know, days in advance of threats on the Internet about violence, um, and as they approached to breach the doors of the Capitol, what would have happened? Well, it wouldn't have happened. I think I think we're clear, we should be clear on that. I don't think this would have ever happened if this were a Black Lives Matter protest. Um, I think on par, Black Lives Matter protests have been peaceful. Um, and I think that deserves to be stated again and again. But I also think that had it gone crazy, you would have seen much more bloodshed. You would have seen more than five people killed. And I don't say that to dismiss the deaths of the five people, but I think we would have seen those numbers in the double digits, if not triple digits. We would have seen tear gas. We would have seen tanks. I mean, think about Ferguson. It wasn't that long ago with Mike Brown. And we saw an army meet protesters, an army SWAT. Um, and that was, you know, because they had burned down a, a, a quick trip. So a gas station, I can't imagine how much more before she would see with the nation's capital. The chief of police in the capital has resigned and he's kind of shifting the debate to what happened with the calling in of the, the National Guard. And um, do, do you think that that's just smoke and mirrors that, in fact, you know, they, they had a very good idea that this was going to happen and they just maybe decided not to be ready? I think everybody had a good idea of what was going to happen. I think, again, I said this before, we've been warned for months since the election, not even since the election, before the election, Trump had primed people that this was going to go bad. And if it goes bad, be ready. So I think there is no excuse to say that you were not expecting you know, a crowd of this size that you would not be expecting resistance. Um, that makes no sense to me. And again, it goes back to this idea that we have to be honest with ourselves about um, what we were up against. And I think part of the problem is that no group, both the left or the right, has um, has really a monopoly on truth right now. And, and I feel like we have two narratives that are circulating and um, and we can't seem to find common ground on the truth. Last question to you. In the New York Times today, um, sorry for quoting the New York Times so much, but Timothy yeah. Snyder writes that Trump's focus on alleged irregularities in contested states comes down to cities where black people live mm -hmm. and vote. At bottom, the fantasy of fraud is that of a crime committed by black people against white people. Mm. Facts. <laughs> I mean, short answer. I cannot... There, I mean, you can't, this is not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence that this happens the day that Georgia gets its first black senator and first Jewish American senator. That's not a coincidence. It's not a coincidence that in places like Detroit and Philadelphia and Atlanta, you know, where large populations of black people live, that these votes are contested. I mean, and it's also historically consistent with the fact that black people's voting efforts and their votes have constantly faced suppression and opposition to not count and to not matter. Um, and so in that sense, I think it is it is absolutely racist and we need to be able to call a spade a spade. And the voter suppression was uh, hard to watch. People waiting in hours and hours, and oh making it so difficult. But. Oh my gosh, it makes no sense. Kelly Carter Jackson, assistant professor of studies at Wellesley College, and she's the author of Force and Freedom, Black Abolitionists and the Politics of Violence. Kelly wrote a great article in The Atlantic. I suggest you read it. Thank you so much, Kelly. Thank you for having me.
All right, joining me now is Dr. Darren Porcher. He was formerly a lieutenant with the NYPD in New York, obviously, and he handled a lot of crowd control situations there. Is that right, Darren? That is correct. Was the response by Capitol Police designed to fail? I wouldn't say it was designed to fail. I don't think that they uh, they pre-planned appropriately. When I say pre-planned appropriately, whenever you have a large-scale demonstration of the magnitude of what we saw on the um, the Capitol, you need to focus on certain factions. The first thing is, who is the group that's intending the protest? Number two, what is this group's ideology? And number three, how many people are going to come? You want to triangulate those three components, and that's how you'll assess what your personnel, coupled with technological innovations that'll partner in. Right, we, add up those, we add up those three things, and I think you would be hard-pressed not to say that it was an, it was an epic fail. It was a colossal failure, to say the least. And we clearly saw it on mainstream American television. Uh, and you know, the problem with that was Mayor Bowser, um, Washington, D.C. mayor, was offered the resources of the National Guard, and she rejected it. And then she, in turn, focused on having National Guard members that were not in uniform and they were not armed and placing them on the periphery, meaning behind the demonstrations, not behind the demonstrators, not up front. And I just think that omnipresence is necessary when you have a demonstration of that magnitude, because it was clear that the intelligence reflected that this was going to be a hostile crowd and they were coming to invoke a level of violence, which we clearly saw manifest as a result. Would you agree with me now, as we know more and more about this, that, I mean, given the digital traffic, I mean, who these people are, and the calls to violence, and the calls to arms, and the calls to overthrow the government, the calls to take lawmakers and lynch them, um, that all the intel was there. I mean, the, the Capitol Police absolutely should have known what was coming at them, like a freight train. You know, absolutely. I think what happened was there was a sense of, I don't think I know what happened was there was a sense of complacency on the part of the Capitol Police. Oftentimes you have these demonstrations and a lot of law enforcement practitioners will take that road of, look, probably nothing is not going to happen. Therefore, we want to reserve the budget and we don't want to overreach in, con in connection with the expenditures that we apply to this particular demonstration. And it turned around and it bit them in the rear end. Uh, you, when you speak to the traffic um, on social media, it, it was clearly apparent that you had people that were coming with a specific agenda and that was to reap havoc. And that's what we saw. However, the Capitol Police did not, a plan, did not plan accordingly. And as a result, this is what occurred. Can I ask you how you feel personally when you look at some of these videos, you know, and especially that one where they they grab a policeman by the helmet and they drag him down the steps uh, and beat him with an American flagpole. Um, it, just tell me how you feel as an American and how you feel as an ex-policeman. Well, as an elect, as an ex-police officer, I felt that horrid. I thought this was I was horrified in the um, the visions that were um, revealed to me in connection with cops being beat up and just this over overarching act of anarchy that plagued that Capitol complex. It really begged the question of. Why didn't we have the necessary fortifications in play? I mean, this is troubling, especially when we look to 
what the agenda of this group was and who they were. And I blame the president for a lot of this because he was the person that ginned up the base on false claims of election fraud and had these people assemble at the Capitol. And this was specifically from a selfish perspective. When I say selfish perspective, meaning it was all about him. There was no election fraud. But he still felt as if his 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 time in the in the White House was permanent, not temporary. And this is what happened as a result. So I think he bears a tremendous brunt of responsibility. I know you are very careful what you say and you appear on places like Fox News. Have you been saying what you just told me now in places like that now? Yes. I will, um, the day after. So I want to say on Thursday when I came on Fox, I spoke to this specifically and how the president shouldered a lot of the blame for this. And the, the term that I used on Fox News was this was Charlottesville book two for President uh, Trump, because when we look at the statements that he made, um, the inflammatory statements in connection with what happened in Charlottesville, Virginia, uh, coupled with there being good people on both sides, it was clearly his inability to make a, a proper assessment of what the situation was and put forth the necessary, necessary protocol. So I, you know, I spoke to this the same way I'm speaking to you about this. Several police departments across the country have opened investigations into policemen uh, among their ranks to find out how they were involved, not whether they were there. We know that they were there, involved in the siege on the U.S. Capitol on Washington on January the 6th. These are off-duty officers who have gone to the demonstration. Let me read you a quote from uh, one of the policemen that was interviewed by media there, and he says, there are extraordinary scenes with protesters holding Blue Lives Matter flags launched at police officers quote, we're telling them to get back up and get away and stop. And they're telling us they're on our side. They're doing this for us. These are policemen who are showing a police ID, showing badges uh, off duty in the protests. They're, they're saying this as I'm getting punched in the face by one of them. That happened to a lot of us. We're getting pepper sprayed in the face by these protesters. I'm not going to call them protesters, even they're domestic rioters. Terror. I mean, right. what's your reaction to that? There were so many, and I, I can't put a number on it, but there were a number of policemen that went to that protest and were involved in entering the Capitol building. Well, I'll just give you an example here. With the NYPD has one officer under investigation for actually going into that Capitol complex when they uh, when they breached the doors. We had members of the FDNY, you know, the Fire Department of New York, that also traveled to D.C. and and were a part of this demonstration. We had a West Virginia legislator that did the same thing. He also um, committed to when those doors were fracturing, entering that capital. What's going complex. on with that? I mean, the FBI, uh, former FBI agent Michael German says um, that far-right domestic terror threats have infiltrated many police departments across the country. There, are, We know that there are police officers who have carried these QAnon uh, badges, and, uh, and then now they're participating in, you know, a, an act of terrorism against the nation. This is absolutely an act of domestic terrorism. The Southern Poverty Law Center has spoken to these far-right groups for a period of time, and we haven't taken them serious. Now is the time that we need to read the tea leaves and address what this is a group that we need to have an active presence in law enforcement um, looking towards. 
this is a problem and it has to get done and needs to be proactive, not reactive on the part of law enforcement. This was an atrocity. This was an act of anarchy and it shouldn't happen in a country like the United States. Can you weed those people out of a police department? Well, you have an applicant processing um, division that investigates uh, police candidates prior to coming into the department. Now, one of the things that they often do is they'll look to uh, an individual's social media and they'll knock on doors in that area. And that's where you can gain somewhat of a background assessment as to who this person is from a social perspective. But that being said, um, we need to we need to look at this for what it is. And this is an act of domestic terrorism and it needs to be eradicated and it needs to happen now not yesterday not the day I, I mean, not, it happened it needs to happen now not a week from today not a month from now we need to ramp up resources and focus on this threat that is putting our country in jeopardy as a result i just interviewed a, a professor who wrote for the atlantic magazine kelly carter jackson um and she really makes the case in the atlantic that um, and she, she teaches on uh, force and freedom, black abolitionists and politics of violence at uh, Wesley College in, in Massachusetts. She really makes the case that this is a racist response, that had this been a Black Lives Matter protest with all the intel about what was coming, how many were coming, what they might be ready to do, uh, that police would have the police numbers and the police actions would have been very, very different. You're African-American. You're also an ex-policeman. What, what do you say about the racist element? Well, I challenge that narrative on several fronts, because when we look at uh, what happened with these Black Lives Matter protests throughout the course of the summer, they denigrated a lot of the large cities in the country. So it was clear that you didn't have a sufficient police presence. I give you an example. I live in New York City. And a lot of the protests that subsequently placed the city under siege fell what they bifurcated into, whether it was Black Lives Matter, whether it was Antifa, or you even had common citizens that were protesting. We clearly didn't put forth the necessary resources in a place like New York City as it related to these protests. And we subsequently paid the price for it because we saw the denigration of infrastructure. We saw officers assaulted, et cetera. So I've heard that narrative in that it would have been different if it was a Black Lives Matter protest, but that didn't appear to be the case when we look at the demonstrations that plagued places like New York, Chicago, uh, Portland, and Seattle. We clearly saw that the police didn't put in enough um, fortifications to ensure that population was safe. When we look at what happened in Seattle, for example, they even er erected a no police zone, which they referred to as the Chaz zone, whereas they literally took over a police precinct and it became an autonomous zone where citizens were basically there. So that being said, when you do the contrast and comparison, the quantitative statistics don't add up. Can I ask you just your personal view on taking Trump off his Twitter account and more importantly and more broadly that they have suspended some of these new Internet sites that um, where there's a really a lot of hate messaging back and forth. And, you know, on one hand, you have the debate about freedom of speech and is that the right thing to do? But on the other hand, you have growing calls for people to go to the streets and carry out violence. And what do you do? Where do you line well, up on it as? 
It's a slippery slope. This is one of the things that the ACLU was actually addressing in connection with President Trump being uh, removed from Twitter. And it begs the question of free speech. I be- I'm a firm, pro- not, not just am I a firm proponent, but one thing that I do know is freedom of speech is not guaranteed. When you have an inflammatory content, such as, let's say, if you go into a movie theater and you yell fire because you want a better seat. This is something which would cause you to be held accountable. That being said, Twitter ejected President Trump because he used Twitter as a platform to gin up the base and direct them towards the Capitol. And he specifically stated that I'm going to be there with you. That being said, Twitter was the vehicle of access that promoted this riot. Now, I don't want to completely blame Donald Trump for all of this, but he does level uh, shoulder a level of responsibility. So when you mention um, social media platforms such as Parler, which is a conservative uh, social media platform that's since come under fire, one can argue that the regulatory process within the framework of Parler is not sound because they're allowing threats or inappropriate material to be, to yeah, be transferred I mean, we, under we that expect, platform. We criticize those social media companies, the tech giants, if they can't police things like child porn or if they can't police uh, hatred and, and racism. And so we're demanding they do that. Suddenly now they have taken down the one that you just mentioned and uh, there's a lot of criticism. So I, I'm not sure. It's... it's uh, it's a I mean, foggy, I, foggy situation, but I think I think on that, you know, giving my own opinion, which I'm not I generally don't do as a journalist. But I think when you're right there between the assault on the Capitol and inauguration and there are more calls for violence on the 17th and on the 20th. And there is the the, the media companies are not policing that they, they simply can't in some ways. In other ways, they just turned a blind eye to it. But in order for to have law and order and not to really have the street on fire, I guess you, you have to trade some of that off in the short term. You know, I agree with you. I, and it goes back to what I, my, what I mentioned earlier. Freedom of speech is not absolute. And therefore, I think that it's necessary that you have an entity to marshal in to ensure that the content is sound, such as child pornography, threats to one's life, things to that effect. Those things need to be marshaled in. And it was questionable in connection with what was occurring on the platform of Parler. It may be it may be a situation where Parler may be now forced to put forth um, an integrity clause or, or, you know, some level of oversight. I think Parler is a sunk ship, but. Yeah, but well, you know, that that may be true. But I'm just saying that we're using that as an example because that's what's happening right now. Future sites will develop and come to fruition. This is not the end of this. And so that being said, I think there needs to be a clear lane of oversight within that social media platform to ensure that hate speech or things that are illegal are not transferred on that um, that platform as a result. Do you think this is pretty well organized? My last question to you, uh, the assault on the Capitol, when you take a look at the fact that pipe bombs uh, were placed outside the the Democratic headquarters and the Republican headquarters, probably to distract police. Um, people in there with the zip, 
lock rings that I've seen a lot in Iraq and Afghanistan. The military uses them to handcuff people. They knew where the offices were. I've seen maps that were put on the internet prior to the march where they said where Pelosi's office was, where Vice President Pence could be. Um, I mean, th this goes beyond a little demonstration that got out of control. I, I think quite the opposite. I don't think that this was organized. I think that what you had was you had you know, thousands of people that converged on that capital um, compound. And within that group, you had people that had their in their own internal agendas that they went in, they, they drove towards, such, such as people that had zip ties. And, you know, why would you bring a zip tie to a protest other than looking to take people into custody? And chanting so Lynch, Lynch the vice president. I clearly believe that there was nefarious behavior, at, you know, um, at the foundation of a lot of this. But I also think that whenever you have these protests, I think the the organizers of the protests, I think it should be incumbent upon those individuals, the pre, the people that are bestowed upon the permit for a particular um, demonstration. They should be held accountable for marshalling in the people that are coming in to um, to protest or demonstrate. And I don't I don't believe they had a um, I don't think I know they did not have a permit for this. They just converged on the uh, on the property and they committed I guess, to I guess a mass the permit is the, the words of the president therein, right? I mean, he's telling them to go down there. He's telling them. Pence One can argue. Rudy Giuliani, you know, one can argue that the president gave people a fast pass to go out there and do that. But it goes back to you asked the initial question that I think this was organized. No, I think this was more like um, abstract. And you had different components of people that uh, arose on that Capitol complex and they looked forth or they set forth to advance their agendas. I don't think it was uniformly everyone that was there, but one person is too much. You know, I lie to you sometimes. I tell you it's the last question and then I give you another one, right? No, that's fine. So, all right. So I, I'm pleading guilty and I'm just going to have one more question. You worried about the 17th and the 20th and are, are we going to be prepared this time? Are they going to get it right? They'll get it right. There's going to be overkill this time, to be honest with you. You know, you're probably going to have F-16 fighter jets, or Harrier jump jets that are going to fly over the Capitol <laughs> to make sure that there's going to be an air presence. There's going to be a ground presence yeah. to ensure that there's no repeat to what happened on Wednesday. But then some of the calls are for legislatures across the country as well, right? So people who don't necessarily go to Washington may show up you know, in Virginia or in anywhere. And so the threat is still huge. Well, I think a lot of the uh, the legislators, such as be it Josh Hawley or Ted Cruz, that align themselves with this election fraud, in many instances, people would say, hey, look, you championed that cause. And so I don't want to say that they'll be held accountable from uh, from a law enforcement perspective, but I think that the votership will hold them accountable moving forward. You know, one thing I give you an example, Lindy, Lindsey Graham, who was a diehard supporter of Donald Trump. He put the brakes on this and said, look, enough is enough. We need to cut the crap. We need to have a civil change of power. This was just too much. Yeah, he said he said enough. And uh, he looked scared to me. He, he looked like he, he looked like he suddenly understood what the rest of us could see coming for a long time, that if you delegitimize election, 
and tell people that they've been cheated and that the system doesn't work for them anymore, they are going to go to the street and they're going to be angry. Yeah, absolutely right. You know, uh, words matter, especially when they're echoed from the president of the United States or the leader of any country for that matter. Um, We had 75 million people that voted for Donald Trump. So the followership was wide and deep. Therefore, you need to stay abreast to the fact of what you say matters, and you can put forth an agenda that can possibly create a toxic environment that can cause someone to either lose their life or become injured. And that's what we saw here. I, you know, right now, I, you know what the, the million dollar question is? I wonder what's going through Donald Trump's mind right now, looking at what happened, you know, and saying to himself, damn, you know, because this is what his legacy is going to be based on. That four years, because I'll be the first to tell you, I thought there were some phenomenal things that happened under the Trump umbrella, more so specific to the um, the U.S. dollar and the stock market. But there were a lot of things that didn't go good. But more importantly, when you look at how he went out of the presidency, that's how he's going to be judged for eternity. And there's nothing that he can do to change that. To, to use your words, you know, toxic. It's a hell of a legacy. Dr. Darren Porcher. <laughs> Darren, I really appreciate talking to you. Thanks so much. As always, Dane, I appreciate it. And that's our backstory on this, a week when Democrats seek a second impeachment of Trump, the first president in history to be impeached twice. Joe Biden received 80 million votes, but Trump got 74 million. That's an awful lot of people who were told the election was stolen. It's a lie, but they were told that by a president many believe. And where does that leave the country now? And how does Biden govern in this climate of division? Trump won't slink away easily. He will be there to disrupt and divide and light a match to whatever bonfire he can set. Dangerous days ahead in the U.S. Please subscribe to this podcast and share our link. That's this backstory. I'm Dana Lewis, and I'll talk to you again soon.